For in Entur I will stop the annihilation of my creatures, and I will return the people from their dwelling grounds. Let them build many cities so that I can refresh myself in their shade. Let them lay the bricks of many cities in pure places. Let them establish places of divination in pure places. And when the fire quenching is arranged, the divine rights and exalted powers are perfected, and the earth is irrigated. I will establish well-being there. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age of the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest. Annika. So today, we're listening to the ETCSL's assembly of the Sumerian Flood Story. So essentially, like 20 years ago when this website was being put together, the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature, there were at least five different fragments with parts of the Sumerian Flood Story on them. This is the same story that inspired Noah's Flood Story in the Bible, as well as Diversion in Gilgamesh. There's also a flood in the Atrahasis myth from episode one. So essentially this world-destroying flood that only one family survived with a bunch of animals on their boat was a universal element in the mythological history of Mesopotamia. This next quote uses the phrase black-headed people, which is what the Sumerians called themselves. That also included other ethnicities living in urban societies, you know, people living in large cities like us. After An, Enlil, Enki, and Ninhursanga had fashioned the black-headed people, they also made animals multiply everywhere and made herds of four-legged animals exist on the plains, as is befitting. So here in a different fragment, an unknown god is talking. As usual, the gods are imposing manual labor on humankind. I will oversee their labor. Let the builder of the land dig a solid foundation. This story parallels the Sumerian king list. It's part of the same scribal tradition. It lists five cities to receive the kingship before the flood. The important ones to our narrative are Eridu and Shurupak. Larak is another one, which is a large city during the Uruk period. The fact that all these cities were old when writing was being invented may have something to do with the fact that these particular cities are remembered as some of the first cities in human history to the Sumerians. After they're created, these five cities are apportioned to their respective patron gods. After kingship had descended from heaven, after the exalted crown and throne of kingship had descended from heaven, the divine rights and the exalted powers were perfected. The bricks of the cities were laid in holy places. Their names were announced. The first of the cities, Eridu, was given to Nudimud, the leader. The second, Badabir, was given to the mistress. The third, Larak, was given to Pabilsag. The fourth, Zimbir, was given to the hero Utu. The fifth, Shurapak, was given to Sud. And after the names of these cities had been announced, the river was watered and the cleansing of the small canals was established. So again, as always, the gods create manual labor for humans, and the most important form of manual labor is maintaining the canals to make sure they can still grow food. So essentially, the gods are assigning humans their perfect roles in the golden age before the flood. A different fragment continues. Holy Anana made a lament for its people. Anki took counsel with himself. An, Enlil, Anki, and Ninhursanga made all the gods of heaven and earth take an oath by invoking An and Enlil. In those days, Zi'itshura, the king, the Guduk priest. So the text is broken here, but we do know from other texts that Zi'utsura is the Sumerian Noah figure. He is the last king of Shuvrupak, the fifth of the cities, before the flood. He's probably the person in this text described as humble, committed, and reverent. So again, the main part of the story here is broken, but based on later versions, the gods agree to flood the world and wipe out all humanity, and they take an oath not to tell the humans about their plan. But Enki finds a loophole in the oath to tell his favorite human, Zi'utsura. So while the mortal king of Shuvrupak is sleeping, Enki goes to his house and pretends to be talking to the wall, which is technically not breaking the oath, but still he's informing the human of his fate. 
Enki has some aspects of the trickster archetype found in other world mythologies. Is he talking to the wall like, so he's not facing the person he's speaking to? Yeah, yeah. So he's like, I wasn't telling the human. I was just talking to the wall next to the human. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something that was not a dream appeared. Ziud Shura, standing at its side, heard, Sidewall, standing at my left side. Sidewall, I will speak words to you. Take heed of my words. Pay attention to my instructions. A flood will sweep over the entire land. A decision that the seed of mankind is to be destroyed has been made. The verdict, the word of the divine assembly, cannot be revoked. The order announced by An and Enlil cannot be overturned. Their kingship, their term has been cut off. Their heart should be rested about this. So we don't know exactly what Enki says, but based on later versions, it's probably something like build a big boat and put a bunch of animals in it. In a new fragment, the storm starts. Like in one of two biblical traditions, here the flood is caused by storms and not the firmament opening up. After the windstorms and gales arose together and the flood swept over the land. After the flood had swept over the land and waves and windstorms had rocked the huge boat for seven days and seven nights. Utu, the sun god, came out, illuminating heven and earth. Zi-Ud-Shura could drill an opening in the huge boat and the hero Utu entered the huge boat with his rays. Zi-Ud-Shura, the king, prostrated himself before Utu. The king sacrificed oxen and offered innumerable sheep. In a new fragment, a god is talking. Presumably that god is Utu, god of justice and the sun, among other things. They have made you swear by heaven and earth. On and Enlil have made you swear by heaven and earth. More and more animals disembarked onto the earth. And the end of the story sets up the Gilgamesh story. So Zi-Ud-Shura, also known as Utnapishtim in the Gilgamesh epic, is the only human allowed to live forever. The gods give him a new home in the land of Dilmun, or modern Bahrain, in the Persian Gulf. Zi-Ud-Shura, the king, prostrated himself for An and Enlil. An and Enlil treated Zi-Ud-Shura kindly. They granted him life like a god. They brought down to him eternal life. At that time, because of preserving the animals and the seed of mankind, they settled Zi-Ud-Shura, the king, in an overseas country, in the land of Dilmun, where the sun rises. No, I was going to say, it's interesting that the flood myth is connected with Bahrain, because as we talk about in both episodes 11 and 14, the Persian Gulf used to be dry land until at some point between about 12,000 and 4,000 BCE. The whole thing filled up with water, like seawater. And there's a quote from the Portuguese colonist in episode 11 that says that certain old people in Bahrain have a legend that the freshwater springs underneath the ocean that they visit to bring up fresh water used to be on dry land before the ocean swallowed it all up, which means that they had a memory of when it used to be dry land dating back to before 4000 BC. The last two episodes covered the southern Mesopotamian Delta during the Ubayid period between the late 5000s and early 4000s BCE. In this episode, we'll look at the interaction between that Ubayid society and the peoples living on the northern coast of the Arabian Peninsula along the coast of the Persian Gulf. After an introduction to the Arabian Neolithic, we're going to start with As-Sabiyah in Kuwait, home to the earliest evidence of Ubaid contact with the Gulf, and the most thorough admixture of Ubaid and local Arabian culture. Then we'll take a quick look at the campsite of Dosaria, where sailors from the Delta likely feasted and exchanged gifts with the locals. Then we'll finish up with Dalma Island in the southeastern Gulf, which locals had already occupied and likely started herding domestic goats on when the first Ubaid pottery arrived from the Delta. So our story starts a long time ago, around 13,000 BCE, this is near the end of the Paleolithic period of the Stone Age and the end of the Pleistocene geological epoch, a couple thousand years before the beginning of modern climatic conditions. In our own internal chronology, it's currently episode one, contemporary with the Natufian period in Syro-Palestine. During this period, the area now covered by the Persian Gulf was mostly dry land, one big valley about the size of Great Britain. Through the middle of this valley flowed the so-called Ur-Shat River, named after the modern Shat al-Arab, or the River of the Arabs, which flows to the Gulf from the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates near modern Basra. Four main tributaries flowed into the Urshat River. The Tigris and Euphrates, of course, 
but also the Karun River flowing from near Susa in Iran and the Wadi Batin flowing from Kuwait. Some tributaries, fed by freshwater springs, joined the river farther downstream until it flowed into the ocean near the modern Strait of Hormuz. We can still see its ancient course in the form of a modern canyon running along the seafloor of the Gulf, ending in a massive lake 1.1 square kilometers and about 40 meters deep, just north of the modern United Arab Emirates. In other words, if they had figured out agriculture a few thousand years earlier, the Fertile Crescent would have stretched all the way from Turkey to Oman, with some of the best farmland in the world at the mouth of the Urshat River. But of course, they didn't, and now all their stuff is buried under an impossibly large amount of river sediment and or seawater. So starting around 13,000 BCE, the Antarctic ice shelf began to melt, causing sea level to rise by an average of one centimeter a year for the next 6,000 years. As a result, the Urshat Valley began to fill with seawater. Since it lay so close to sea level, much of the valley floor was flooded early on in this process. By 12,000 BCE, the sea had risen to about 80 meters below modern sea level, reclaiming most of what would have been prime agricultural land. By around 10,000 BCE, the North American ice sheet had also begun to melt. Lake Agassiz, a massive lake south of Hudson Bay, named after a 19th century racist, had covered more land area than all Great Lakes combined. As its ice dams began to melt, it dumped a huge amount of cold water into the northern Atlantic, slowing the overall warming trend and possibly contributing to the younger, driest climate event. This rush of water pushed rising seas across another large, flat area of land around 60 meters below modern levels. By around 8500 BCE, when the first signs of domesticated cereals appeared in northern Mesopotamia, the sea had risen to 40 meters below modern levels. Most of the gulf had been flooded except near the modern coast. For the next 5,000 years, the sea would continue to rise, gradually but consistently. Freshwater wetlands would become brackish coastal wetlands before being submerged. Coastal sites would be flooded, and inland sites would become coastal with variable results. Most importantly, as we'll see, it became a whole lot easier to travel from the Mesopotamian Delta to access coastal resources and trade with people along the Gulf Coast. So around 8,000 BCE, the intertropical convergent zone extended 1,100 kilometers north of its present position, bringing the Indian Ocean monsoons with it. This was the beginning of two millennia of warm, wet conditions, appropriately called the Holocene Humid Period, during which the Arabian Peninsula was covered in grasslands and forests. Inland lakes at Mundafan, near modern Yemen, and Taima in the northwest, apparently supported populations of large wild mammals, camel, ass, horse, oryx, and even hippopotamus, the latter of which could only have lived in a permanently deep freshwater lake. Human stone tools also appear at these lakes as early as 7600 BCE, similar to those used at the early farming villages of Syria and Palestine. They may have practiced recession irrigation farming along the shores of these lakes. That is, when the lakes began to recede after the peak of the monsoon season, people could plant grain in the wet and fertile soil left behind. The nearby grasslands also would have provided grazing land for their domestic herds. However, just as we've seen in the Mesopotamian Delta, people were probably primarily attracted to the rich wetland environments, which afforded them not only water and good soil, but also ample opportunities for hunting, fishing, and foraging. If these stone tools represent migrations of farming peoples into the peninsula, they may have brought not only their stores of grain and not only the rats that stowed away in their grain, but possibly also the cats who ate those rats. Studies of modern cats' mitochondrial DNA find the most ancient domestic lineages not only in Palestine, where we would expect to find African wildcats guarding early Neolithic grain stores, but also in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. As we'll see, their herds of sheep and goat are also descendants of Syro-Palestine domestic livestock. The late 6000 BCE marked the end of the Holocene humid period. As I've mentioned, the 8.2 kilo-year event brought colder and drier conditions to the entire region. The monsoon retreated to the south, the lakes began to dry up, and the peninsula began the long process of desertification. As we've talked about elsewhere, this likely shocked people into changing their lifestyle. As we've seen, it made people more nomadic in northwestern Syria, and it may have made people more sedentary in the Delta. 
In fact, it's not impossible that some of the early migrants from Syro-Palestine to these inland lakes eventually found themselves in these early Ubaid centers a ways up the Gulf Coast. So because of that sea level rise that I mentioned, we have more evidence from these inland lakes than from the coast at the time. But there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't have also lived along the coast. Obviously, access to fresh fish, regardless of rainfall or air temperature, would help people survive unstable climate conditions. Goats and sheep also provided a useful service to mobile herders, especially the numerous prehistoric waterways where monsoon runoff flowed into the sea. Namely, these animals are able to drink brackish water, which is too salty for human consumption, and produce potable milk. In other words, even in environments with very little fresh water, humans able to digest or process dairy products can use our herds as walking water filters. In the early 5000s, the climate warmed up again and it started to rain again. The population started to grow. The southeastern end of the Gulf, near the modern Strait of Hormuz, saw a burst of new settlements both in the coast and in the interior. Likely, this new climate reversed some of the desertification. More fresh water and more hospitable conditions for plants would have enabled not only longer-term farming and herding, but also more successful hunting and foraging. So earlier, I mentioned that freshwater springs used to feed the prehistoric Urshat River, supplied by subterranean rivers linked to the Rub al-Khali and Zagros aquifer systems. These didn't disappear when the ocean swallowed up the valley. To this day, freshwater continues to well up from the seafloor from underwater springs called Khawakb in the local dialect of Bahrain. In 1603, a Portuguese colonist wrote about the island of Bahrain. The chief town of the isle, Manama, is on the seashore, and near it, in the depth of three or three and a half fathoms, are several great springs of fresh, clear, and wholesome water. There are some men who make their living by bringing it up from below in water skins, which they do very cleverly and easily, where it bubbles up and sell it cheap. Certain of the oldest moors of the isle told me that these springs were once far inland, but the sea broke in and overflowed them, as we see at this day. In other words, local memory of the sea level rise appears to have survived for at least 6,000 years, which is impressive but not unprecedented. I've mentioned similar examples of indigenous societies from Australia and North America who preserve memories of geological events on a similar timescale. So with these rising sea levels, we see new communities pop up on the coast, first on the southern coast of Iran in the late 6,000s BCE, which we don't have as much evidence for from this period, but rest assured that they were also engaged in the sea trade. More relevant to us, though, in the early 5,000s BCE, Rising seas cross north of the modern Iraqi coastline, eventually making their way to the Ubaid southern delta. In other words, the residents of Ur and Eridu didn't have to leave their neighborhood to start venturing into the ocean. Instead, the ocean came to them. In many cases, the ends of the raised river levee system started to extend outwards into the brackish marshes, depositing fresh water and alluvial soil on top, and gradually extending the coastline outwards. Ur and Eridu themselves wouldn't be flooded, at least not permanently but they would be much better situated to venture into the Gulf to trade, fish, and gather reeds. We see the first coastal communities on the Gulf Coast, around 5400 BCE, at the site of as which we'll start with. From their inception, these coastal sites were in contact with the Ubaid centers we talked about in the last two episodes. In fact, since we know mobile herders had used this area for millennia, these settlements may have only been founded as a result of this interaction. The sea will continue to rise until the early 3000s BCE, after the end of the Ubaid. Much of the area south of Ur will be swallowed up by the Gulf or by coastal brackish marshland, until the river eventually deposits enough silt at the mouth of the delta to extend the coastline back out again. Even at modern levels, much of the gulf is fairly shallow. The area between modern Iraq and Qatar is mostly less than 50 meters deep, with no areas deeper than 70 meters, which doesn't leave much room for large populations of fish, let alone larger predators like sharks. On the other hand, the gulf is deeper between Qatar and the Strait of Hormuz, up to 100 meters deep in parts. The bottom of the ancient lake bed I mentioned is 140 meters below the surface, allowing for a more diverse range of habitats. As a result, people in this latter area appear to have eaten larger fish, including sharks. Deepwater ocean fish also appear in Ubaid temples around this time, suggesting either trade or long-distance fishing trips 
from the Delta to the far side of the Gulf. Like I said, we'll be focusing on the Arabian Neolithic culture on the northern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. They lived in a type of small rectangular house called a barasti, built around four posts driven into the ground, with walls and ceilings made of palm fronds and thatched roofs likely made of palm fronds or reeds. In most cases, only the post holes survive. Their villages were small, usually under a hectare, apparently occupied and abandoned on a seasonal basis as their inhabitants moved their herds from pasture to pasture. As in the Mesopotamian Delta, their economy was based on a combination of Neolithic herding with foraging in productive wetland environments. From the beginning of the period, they were not only herding sheep and goat, but also fishing in shallow coastal waters and collecting snails, crabs, turtles, and shellfish. The single most common animal recovered from Arabian Neolithic sites is a sea snail called the crowned turban shell. According to Weizhong Chen and colleagues in a 2011 article, this species made up 70% of all animal remains by number of specimens. The vast majority of vertebrates, or about 95%, came from fish, on which more later. We don't have much evidence of cereal agriculture. Barley, found at Asabia, may have either been grown locally or imported from the Ubeya Delta. However, in the eastern peninsula, chaff used to temper pottery came from locally cultivated grain, possibly grown with well water in the shade of date palms. Speaking of which, date stones appear around the same time in Asabia in Kuwait, on Dalma Island in the UAE, and in the Ubeya Delta. These are indistinguishable from wild date stones, which either means that they were gathered from the wild, or that local growers hadn't started to selectively breed date palms yet. Besides their fruit, these trees would have served as an important source of wood and fibers. Like the Mesopotamian Delta, the Gulf didn't have access to a particularly wide range of natural resources, especially trees. They also would have been reliant on the various species of reeds that grew in the coastal wetlands. It's unclear whether they were as reliant on reed boats as Ubeid sailors, but in the absence of a local ceramic tradition, independent of Mesopotamian contact, they would have needed to make a lot of their tools out of abundant local stands of reeds, not least baskets, which they would need if they didn't have pottery. The oldest evidence of livestock herding on the peninsula appears around 6100 BCE in modern Yemen. There's no evidence from the Gulf Coast until the mid-5000s BCE when the first herders appear in the UAE. Genetic analysis confirms that these sheep and goats are descended from domestic herds in Syria and Palestine, not from a local domestication event. This, along with the cat genes I mentioned, suggests a migration from the Western Fertile Crescent during or after the pre-pottery Neolithic. On the other hand, canid bones at these sites were more similar to local Arabian wolves than to domestic Near Eastern dog breeds. Were they hunting wild wolves, or was this a separate domestication event, tens of thousands of years after dogs were first domesticated in the Near East? They also hunted the wild fauna of the Arabian Peninsula, gazelle, wild ass, and ostrich, and the marine mammals of the Gulf, dugongs and dolphins. This, combined with the herd's ability to turn brackish water into milk, reduced their reliance on domestic meat, allowing them to maximize stock breeding for trade. Dugongs, similar to manatees, grow up to 3 meters, or 10 feet long, and weigh up to 300 kilograms, or 650 pounds. They mostly eat seagrass in shallow coastal waters. The Persian Gulf is home to the second largest population of dugongs in the world after the northern coast of Australia. Neolithic Arabians likely relied on them not just for food, but also as a source of oil, fat, and hide. Later, human burials here will incorporate ritual deposits of dugong bones, which suggest some kind of religious or symbolic importance. Bedouins were still making sandals out of dugong leather well into the 20th century CE. So I mentioned that most of the Gulf is extremely shallow. Most of the northern half is between 20 and 40 meters deep, and especially near coastal sites like Dosaria, it could be less than 20 meters deep. Especially if the locals didn't make boats for their own use, this would force them to rely on a smaller range of smaller fish, rather than larger predators like sharks and tuna, mostly hunt in deeper waters. Among the most common species of fish were bronze catfish and thin-spined sea catfish, both of which prefer shallow coastal waters. These may have been caught with a hook and line. On the other hand, in the southeastern gulf, upwelling off the coast of Oman, outside the Strait of Hormuz, creates a nutrient-rich environment, attracting lots of fish to these deeper waters at certain times of year. Local mangrove forests may also provide better materials for building ocean-going fishing boats. 
As a result, at sites like Dalam Island, we see larger fish and a higher percentage of fish from deeper waters. For example, tuna were more common on islands in the southeast than on the peninsula. These usually live in the open ocean, but their migration route can bring them closer to shore. Like I mentioned, we see the first fish hooks appear during the late 5000s, carved from mother of pearl, although they aren't particularly common at first. We also have evidence of nets of various sizes, which may have been the most efficient way to catch fish. These were apparently attached to net weights in the form of pebbles of a standard size, all notched and grooved in the same way to prevent the rope from slipping off. The net itself may have been made from wool thread. Among other means to gather fish, it only takes a few people to stretch seines or weirs across an entire beach. They may have also set up traps on the seafloor or long fishing lines on the beach. Assuming some comfort with ocean swimming, they may have also fished with spears or harpoons or driven fish into nets. Some fishermen began to specialize over time. For example, one site in Oman appears to have focused on fishing sharks in particular. All three sites we're looking at today had lots of Ubaid material, suggesting that they interacted in some way with Mesopotamian culture, at least indirectly. However, at all three sites, fishing practices continued more or less unchanged during and after this contact. In other words, trade with Mesopotamia doesn't seem to have changed their basic subsistence practices all that much. For the most part, they continued to prioritize small fish in the shallows. So we're going to start in Asabia, Kuwait, with the site of H3, which is a small site under one hectare. This is the earliest known site on the Gulf Coast in contact with the Ubayid Delta around 5400 BCE. And like at Dosaria, around 80% of its pottery belongs to the Ubayid tradition. The site offers some natural resources of its own, seafood, stands of wild reeds, and natural seepages of bitumen about 100 kilometers away. But it was probably more useful as a harbor. A narrow peninsula enclosing a shallow bay would have sheltered the small reed boats docked here from ocean currents. As we'll see, the site would preserve evidence for long-distance sea trade with both Ubayid Mesopotamia and the southeastern Gulf. As elsewhere in the Gulf, they eat a lot of fish between 20 and 50 centimeters long, especially grouper and sea bream, which together make up about half of individual fish found at the site. Both can be caught in shallow coastal waters. In general, the kinds of fish don't change over time, but requiem sharks, that is the kind of shark you picture when I say shark, do get more common over time, with some sharks and rays up to two or three meters long. Did this reflect environmental changes, or were they catching bigger fish to feed a growing sedentary population? The only fishing equipment we have from H3 are net sinkers and possible bone gorges made to wedge themselves in fish gullets. They may have also hunted sharks with spears. They were reliant on fish throughout the entire history of the site, but domestic livestock remains get more common over time. Again, this may suggest an increasing need to feed a larger and more sedentary population. Barley appears in period three, most likely grown in Mesopotamia. Like in the alluvium, barley wasn't native to the environment, but the climate at the time could have supported small-scale farming, likely supplied with water from wells, like I said. So, occupation at the site of H3 started around 5400 BCE with the campsite type occupation called Period 1. The only architectural feature during this period is a series of fire pits. The material culture mostly belongs to the local Arabian Neolithic. We've got stone tools and beads and so on. But like I said, we also see Ubayid pottery from this earliest level. This shouldn't surprise us. After all, Ubayid pottery is over a thousand years old at this point, and Asabia is accessible by boat from the place where it originated. However, alongside these early Ubayid imports, we see locally produced pottery, which is notable since the locals had no pottery tradition before Ubaid contact. In other words, this local pottery, called Arabian courseware, red and tempered with straw, only appears after Ubaid sailors arrived with their own pottery, and was likely created to imitate it, possibly so that locals could participate in the same kinds of feasting traditions that the Ubaid sailors brought with them. Similar pottery will appear at Dosaria in the central gulf, three to four hundred years later. Period two, around 5300 BCE, saw an extensive project of building and rebuilding permanent architecture using a local beach rock and sandstone in a different style from the Ubaid houses of the Mesopotamian Delta. During this period, corresponding to the Ubaid II and III periods, Ubaid material becomes more common, not just pottery, but also labrays or lip plugs, and other Mesopotamian styles of jewelry, although local styles of shell bead and jewelry manufacture continue. 
This is also when we see the first bitumen used to make both seagoing boats and boat models, both on more in a bit. Period three at the end of the 5000s BCE represented the most sedentary phase of occupation here, with both Ubaid and local Arabian material cultures thriving alongside each other. Continuing from the previous period, a series of contiguous stone buildings with several rooms proliferate across the mound. These are used for different purposes, frequently built, abandoned, and renovated. Rooms are joined and then blocked off from each other, reflecting flexible and possibly seasonal occupation as people follow the migration of their herds. For example, one room started off as an animal pen before being converted to a workshop for bead and shell jewelry. Another room was used for bitumen production, which we'll talk about. At least some of the obsidian these artisans worked was imported from Anatolia. We know that Yemen exported at least some obsidian across the peninsula, some of which originated in the Horn of Africa. Among other evidence of crafts, we see a boat model, which we'll talk about, and a pierced pearl, five millimeters in diameter, for use in jewelry. The site was reoccupied in period four in the early 4000s BCE, possibly after being abandoned for some time. Some buildings were renovated and a few new buildings were built. We have a cache of Ubaid-style goods from this period, discs, tokens, lip plugs, etc., which we'll talk more about later, as well as a fair amount of local stone tools and shell jewelry. Bitumen is less common during the last period. We have only two pieces from period four compared to 36 pieces from period three, which may suggest a lull in the boat trade. The material assemblage of H3 represents a unique combination of imported and local pottery. Imported Ubaid pottery is mostly for serving and consumption, while local Arabian courseware is mostly for cooking. In other words, they made local pots for utilitarian purposes in the kitchen and imported fine Ubaid cups and bowls for prestige at the proverbial dinner table. This suggests that, even if nobody at the dinner was quote-unquote ethnically Ubaid, if such a concept even makes sense, they may have consciously tried to imitate quote-unquote Ubaid feasts, banquets, or table manners, all of which may have traveled along with the pots themselves. The Ubaid pots themselves did travel beyond H3. The densest concentrations are along the coast, where locals apparently feasted with Ubaid sailors, as we'll see at Dosaria. Nomadic groups do appear to have absorbed some of this pottery for their own uses and traded some of it away. Unlike H3, however, they didn't incorporate these new dining practices into their culture, not least because they would have had to carry this fragile pottery around as they followed their herds. In fact, the pottery may cluster on the coast precisely because these feasts serve to facilitate this exchange. We'll talk about pearls, but they may have also traded livestock, textiles, bitumen, obsidian, and so on. In both Mesopotamia and the Gulf, reeds were by far the most abundant construction material available for boats. Teams of workers, having harvested bundles of reeds from long stretches of rivers and canals, would arrange these bundles in the shape of a boat, tie them together, and seal the outside with bitumen to create a waterproof hull. Bitumen is a naturally occurring form of sticky black tar with several sources in central and northern Mesopotamia, as well as nearby Kuwait. It was useful to Mesopotamians as a means to waterproof other services, not only boats, but also baskets and pottery. It could also be used as a material in its own right to make sculptures, beads, bricks, or other objects. The bitumen at H3 originates from a seep at Burgan, much closer than the other Mesopotamian sources, but still over 100 kilometers away. Walking 10 miles a day, this is a two-week round trip at least, and you'd have to carry chunks of it back in baskets or leather bags. It helps that bitumen is shelf-stable at normal temperatures. Once you've obtained the raw material, you have to prepare the amalgam. After heating up the chunks of bitumen to melt them into a liquid, you'll want to mix this tar with chopped vegetable matter, and possibly some fish oil or various carbonate compounds, all of which make the bitumen lighter, more flexible, and more adhesive not least filling it with other organic materials that will eventually turn into bitumen. As I mentioned, one room at H3 had evidence of extensive burning between periods two and four. Attempts to carbon date these layers resulted in the same kind of extreme anomalies that often result from burning bitumen, which itself is made of much older organic material, hence the older dates. After all, bitumen represented a long supply chain with many people in several places involved in this production, which is likely why we see evidence that it was recycled at H3. Artisans pried chunks of bitumen off the holes of old ships, melted them down, and stored that bitumen in slab form once it cooled. At least some of these slabs were reused on new ships, if not for other purposes. 18 of these slabs preserve certain evidence of seafaring, 
with reed impressions on one side and barnacles on the other. These represent the outer caulking of seagoing boats, the oldest direct evidence of marine travel in the world. The barnacles belong to the species Balanus trigonus, found throughout the Gulf. These grow in quiet water at low tide or below, and they take two to six months to grow as big as the barnacles found on these slabs. The trip from Eridu to H3 would be over 300 kilometers along the coast, sailing five nautical miles a day. This trip would take at least 37 days, counting time for rest, fishing, taking in fresh water, and having dinner with the locals, and doubling for the return journey. It's easy to see how these boats could spend exactly two to six months in quiet water at low tide. One aspect of Ubayid society, which spread both north into Upper Mesopotamia and south into the Gulf, is the tradition of making small model boats. H3 produced a model of a reed boat, likely made of the same kind of fired clay used for a local Arabian courseware pottery. This model has a flat bottom, like one from Mashnaka in Syria, whereas models from Eridu and Al Ubayid have a curved bottom. Its features may suggest infinite knowledge of boat construction. Pairs of incised undulating lines along both sides may represent reed bundles bound by rope, as in the model at Mashnaka, and three piercings may have originally held string tied into models of rigging. So in addition to the local jewelry made from shell, H3 and several nearby sites preserved a fair amount of Ubaid-style jewelry and domestic tools. Lip plugs, stone ceramic discs, studs, ceramic rings, and so on, many of which first appeared in Mesopotamia. Practical Ubaid household utensils include large bent ceramic nails, which they may have used as grinding tools, Daily household cooking is among the most intimate and persistent expressions of culture, and it's interesting that this tool found purchase among local stone tools. Other Ubaid-style material include spindle whorls and various pottery forms. So I mentioned that hoard from period 4 at H3, which includes many small objects with Ubaid affinities, including ceramic discs, ceramic nails, a ceramic spatula, stone spheres, and spindle whorls. In other words, many copies of a small range of small objects. Some of these may have been tokens for a record-keeping system, similar to those we've discussed in other Neolithic and Ubayid villages, most recently Tel Abada, which we'll look at next time. In other words, they may have been traded as stand-ins for exchanges of livestock or amounts of grain, either beforehand as IOUs or afterwards as receipts. These tokens didn't function as currency, that is, they couldn't be traded outside the community or exchanged for anything other than the item they signified, and they're apparently more common at isolated agricultural villages than at well-connected trade centers. As far as we can tell, these tokens were record-keeping tools on the village level, with little need for a larger or more complicated administrative apparatus. Also in this cache was a little painting of a boat, which apparently started its life as a bowl that originally featured a pattern of lines radiating outward from the center. At some point, the bowl broke, leading one shirt in a roughly round shape, with two of these lines pointing slightly inward. But rather than throwing it away as usual, somebody ground down the edges of this pot shirt to create a more smooth, round-shaped disc. Then they painted a boat, incorporating the two lines from the bowl's original decoration, into two masts, which point towards each other slightly. These have been interpreted as two diagonal supports for a single mast, common in small boats with frames too weak to support a single mast socket. However, they may also depict two masts, which would of course be parallel on a real boat. There is not much to say about this little painted disc, besides that it may speak to the importance of boat building and repair to the local economy at H3. With regard to Ubaid objects more generally though, these shouldn't be taken to represent quote-unquote ethnically Ubaid migrants living in H3. Archaeology has long acknowledged that material culture doesn't necessarily map onto linguistic or other cultural boundaries. Instead, we're probably looking at a series of cultural identifiers that could have easily overlapped with these other categories. As we'll talk about with the Northern Ubaid, many of the archetypal characteristics of the unified Ubaid period were emergent properties of interregional interaction rather than simple cultural exports from the Mesopotamian Delta. After all, the period between about 5300 and 4500 BCE was characterized by more intensive cultural interaction between Mesopotamia, Iran, and the Gulf. In other words, rather than Mesopotamians migrating with all their stuff and then refusing to share it with the locals, or, you know, a homogenous population of locals adopting Mesopotamian characteristics as such, we're probably looking at several related traditions of personal expression, which people could participate in to greater or lesser degrees. 
So moving south into the deeper end of the Gulf, Dosaria is a campsite on the coast of modern Saudi Arabia, occupied from the late 5000s into the early 4000s, as evidenced by centuries worth of piled up oyster shells. As at Dalma, we have no surviving architecture, only post holes in the ground. Here, plaster impressions of reed give us a better idea of how they built their reed huts. This doesn't appear to have been a sedentary settlement so much as a seasonal gathering place for nomadic herders to hold feasts. We have no evidence that anyone was living here before Ubaid contact, possibly because of rising sea levels or a change in climate, but possibly because these local Arabian herders had no business on the coast before Ubaid sailors arrived. So that pile of oyster shells I mentioned is properly a shell midden. This is three meters deep with a range of at least 375 separate fish. Bream make up 267 of those fish, or about 71%. The fish found at Dosaria tended to be smaller, between 20 and 30 centimeters, with fewer fish caught in deep water. However, besides grouper and tuna, they also caught sharks, stingrays, and barracudas. About four-fifths of the pottery found here was imported Ubaid ware, found mixed in with local bone tools, arrowheads, and imported worked obsidian. The other 20% of pottery, like at Dalma, represented a local imitation of these Ubaid imports. However, unlike the plaster bowls at Dalma, this was real ceramic pottery of the local Arabian courseware tradition. It just wasn't particularly fine pottery compared to the competition. We also see bitumen imported from the upper Tigris near modern Mosul, 1,700 kilometers to the north, notably not from the much closer bitumen seeps in Kuwait. As you might imagine, from the three meters of oyster shells, these locals were involved in gathering pearls. Despite the difficulty involved, archaeologists have recovered pearls from Dosaria, Asabia, and Aqab Island, alongside Mother of Pearl, which is made from the oyster shells themselves. Pearls aren't particularly difficult to produce. You can just wade in and pick up the oysters with no need for boats but the process is time-consuming and more efficient in groups. In other words, gathering pearls is exactly the kind of activity that an enterprising chief could organize by inviting a bunch of people to a work feast in exchange for a promise to let him keep all the pearls they find so that he can trade them as gifts later on. We do have pearls used as jewelry from this period. A cemetery at the inland site of Jebel al-Buhais, near the modern border between Oman and the UAE, produced 62 pearls, mostly found near people's heads, likely because they'd been incorporated into jewelry. Other jewelry included carnelian beads imported from the Iranian highlands, along with, as Robert Carter writes in 2012, quote, elaborate shell and stone jewelry pieces, including necklaces, pendants, anklets, bracelets, hip chains, and headdresses, end quote. Dosaria also produced the southernmost Ubaid boat model. The only other one known from the Gulf comes from Asabia, as I mentioned. The northernmost boat model comes from Mashnaka in northeastern Syria, which is also 1,700 kilometers away. Speaking of boats, with a few exceptions, which we've been focusing on, the locals didn't adopt that much Ubaid material culture. They happily accepted gifts of bitumen and obsidian, which are just useful resources, and we've talked about their local imitations of Ubaid pottery. However, the mobile herders of the Arabian plains had little use for much of the paraphernalia of sedentary life in the Mesopotamian Delta. This also appears to have been the case for boats. We have no evidence that people in the central gulf, in the Dosaria area, made boats before or after Ubaid contact, and the vast majority of fish at these sites could be caught in shallow water with no need for ocean-going boats. This doesn't hold for Asabia, and as we'll see, it doesn't appear to hold for Dalma Island either. But in the central gulf, it's likely that herders weren't in the habit of traveling by boat. The predominance of Ubayid pottery, the imported bitumen and worked obsidian, the boat models, and the evidence for large-scale feasting all suggest that Dosaria may have served as a venue for local Arabians to feast with Ubayid sailors. In fact, some scholars have suggested that these Arabians coordinated their seasonal migrations to synchronize with the annual winds bringing Ubayid sailors southward. These feasts would have likely given prominent leaders on both sides a venue to showcase their generosity, likely with fine foods, which we can only guess about, and exchange fine gifts like pearls or worked obsidian. As I've mentioned, local herders were well-situated to maximize livestock production for export, since they weren't primarily reliant on their herds for subsistence. This exchange, likely bolstered by immigration and marriage alliances, would have enriched both sides over time. So I've already mentioned Dalma Island in the southeastern Gulf, in the modern UAE, 
We are 45 kilometers north of Abu Dhabi and 80 kilometers east of Qatar. Unlike the other sites we'll look at today, which may have been founded as centers for trading or feasting with Ubaid sailors, people had already sailed to Dalma, started fishing, and introduced domestic herds of sheep and goat well before Mesopotamian contact. Despite its size, the island is ideally situated for long-term Neolithic occupation, with local sources of not only fresh water, but also flint and gypsum for making stone tools. The particular settlement we're looking at was on or near the coast, probably about 20 meters east of the water. To quote Mark Beach in 2000, the area, quote, where the site is located has been used until recently as a playground, and superficial damage to the site had been caused by the scuffing of children's feet, end quote. As with other sites, we assume they lived in Barasti-style houses, with palm frond walls built around four posts, but we only have patterns of postals that match the patterns at coastal sites in Oman from the same time period. Their stone tools belong to the Arabian bifacial style, similar to the tools found on other islands near deep gulf waters. This cultural similarity, the number of deep water fish at the site, the herds of sheep and goat, and the wild gazelle, all indicate that the people of Dalma regularly made boats and traveled between their island and the mainland, if not also other islands. 7,000 years ago, this village was most reliant on fishing and hunting aquatic animals, with lots of fish, crabs, and shellfish, as well as sea turtles, dolphins, and dugongs. They apparently also hunted gazelle, probably on the mainland, suggesting at least occasional travel back and forth, like I said. The domestic herds of sheep and goat they brought with them were probably imagined more as an emergency backup supply of food in case fishing and marine foraging didn't work out. Mark Beach's 2000 analysis of animal range from Dalma finds the widest range of species from anywhere in the Gulf during the early 4000s BCE. Compared to other sites, a larger percentage of these fish were caught in open water. As I mentioned, the Indian Ocean monsoon drives seasonal upwellings, which mix lots of nutrients into the water, attracting an entire food chain with big fish and sharks on the top. This may be why they moved here in the first place. After all, the nearby peninsula isn't exactly swimming in any natural resource that the island lacks, and as long as you have a reliable way to make a boat, you could catch as many deep-sea fish as you want. As elsewhere in the Gulf, fish make up the vast majority of bones here. Sea breams are most common at Dalma. Then small sharks and rays, needlefish, groupers, tuna, and mackerel. Less common were marine catfish, barracuda, and parrotfish. They caught at least 20 requiem sharks, 10 hammerhead sharks, 2 thresher sharks, 3 eagle rays, and 23 unidentifiable sharks or rays. Most fish bones were from carnivorous fish, about 70 centimeters long, with some groupers up to 1 meter long, from shallow to moderate depths. More fish lived in coral reefs and rocky bottoms than in seagrass, sandy, or muddy environments. Besides fish, there are lots of crabs in all layers, mostly pincer fragments, likely because they ate the rest. Sea turtles appear through the site's history, but remains are too fragmentary to tell which species. Dolphin vertebrae appear in several contexts, but dugongs are more rare. So I mentioned two carbonized date stones. One dates from the Ubaid 2 to 3 period, around 5100 BCE, and the other from the early Ubaid 4, around 4700 BCE. Both the dates overlap with other Ubaid material at the site, so it's impossible to say who introduced it to whom, or whether they were both growing date palms before they met. We can't know whether or not the people of Dalma met Ubaid sailors face-to-face, -face, or who did most of the sailing. Like I said, the Central Gulf didn't seem to make their own boats, but it's likely the people of Dalma did. We do have some Mesopotamian-style painted pottery dating from the Ubaid 3-4 to four period, in other words, from the early 4000s BCE, the same time as the occupations here, but not much. Far more common are painted plaster bowls made from the local gypsum I mentioned. These are manufactured here on the island, with similar painted bowls on Marawa Island. The lack of a native pottery tradition here before Ubaid contact indicates that the inhabitants of Dalma Island made these bowls in imitation of Ubaid imports. The decoration on these bowls was apparently influenced by the Ubaid 4 pottery of the 4000s in particular, which might suggest a shared vocabulary of decorative symbolism. So it's unclear exactly how this pattern of interaction between the Ubaid Delta and the Gulf originated, although we do have some ideas. As I mentioned, rising sea levels brought the ocean directly to the backyard of Ubaid settlements like Ur and Eridu. Right around the same time, this contact began, which made ocean travel much more accessible to people who were already used to making reed boats. This, combined with the absence of a local boat-building tradition from the Central Gulf, 
indicates that Ubaid sailors took the initiative in establishing contact with places like Dosaria. However, we can't discount the possibility that Arabian leaders sought out trade connections with these increasingly large and complex industrial centers in the Delta. After all, grain and textile production are economies of scale, and a chief with lots of pearls to trade, especially in the southeastern Gulf, could do well to establish good relations with Ubaid leaders. The Gulf was a colossal expanse of water to cross in a reed boat, the absolute distance of over a thousand kilometers between Ur and the later center of Umm An-Nar on the far side of the Gulf would represent a journey of 1,500 kilometers to an Ubaid sailor traveling along the southern coast. Traveling at a speed of two to four knots, this trip would take a month, but the return trip would take much longer since the wind blows from the north or the northwest year-round. This may explain why we see the most intensive interaction in the shallow end of the Gulf, northwest of Qatar. Farther east, Arabians probably traded Ubaid material among themselves. It's unclear what Arabians traded away to Ubaid sailors. I've already mentioned pearls, which are undoubtedly attractive to Mesopotamians and their trading partners, as small, high-value goods. I also mentioned the potential incentives for local chiefs to maximize livestock production for export, since the wide-open Arabian plains were perfect for herds of sheep and goat. They also could have exported dates, either cultivated or collected from the wild. A chief could accumulate all of these by throwing a work feast, that is by calling in various favors to procure lots of food for a large crowd of people, who would, in turn, then be compelled to render some kind of service to that chief, gathering pearls, harvesting dates, or even donating livestock. In addition to raw material products, locals may have traded away their labor in the workshops and shipyards of H3, possibly as part of a larger system of feasting and redistribution on the part of local elites. In terms of Ubaid exports to the Gulf, pottery is the most obvious. We've talked about local imitations of Ubaid ware, both in coarse pottery and plaster, for example, an Ubaid style of jar imitated in local style at Dosaria, or plaster ceramics with Ubaid painted designs on Dalma and Marawa Islands. However, the vast majority of this pottery remained on the coast, Small amounts made it up to 70 kilometers inland and as far away as the UAE and possibly Oman, traded along the same routes that had carried obsidian since the Paleolithic. As I mentioned, this imported pottery is overwhelmingly fine tableware meant to impress one's guests with a display of wealth and prestige. Plain pottery for cooking is made of local Arabian courseware. These styles of pottery likely accompanied traditions of dining, partying, and exchanging gifts that grew out of exchange with Ubaid sailors and eventually came to define exchanges between Arabian chiefs, some of whom had likely never met a Mesopotamian in person. This exchange was a positive feedback loop. The more fine pottery one acquired via trade, the more people they could impress at their feasts, leading to gift exchange with a wider network of elites, including both Arabian chiefs and the leaders of Ubaid temples. However, both Arabian courseware and plaster imitations disappear after Ubaid contact drops off around 4500 BCE, suggesting that locals didn't have a permanent need for pottery. They likely wove locally abundant reeds into baskets, which would have been lighter, less fragile, and easier to carry across long distances. So like I said, Ubaid contact with the Gulf ended a little after 4500 BCE. Continuing sea level rise separated Bahrain from the rest of the peninsula, cutting off this new island from the wide Arabian plains. And then those plains dried up. Sea level only stabilized in the early 3000s BCE, coinciding with the beginning of modern arid conditions in the Gulf. Precipitation fell to 35 millimeters per year and the interior of the peninsula was abandoned. This marks the beginning of the quote-unquote dark millennium, as some scholars have dubbed the 3000s BC in the Gulf, during which these dry conditions continued unabated. The Gulf wasn't entirely abandoned. We do have a few sites from this period, including the dugongs I mentioned on Aqab Island. It's possible that people adopted a much more mobile lifestyle, which would have been harder for archaeologists to detect. It's also possible that many left the area, possibly for the greener pastures around the massive cities in southern Mesopotamia. Next time, we'll see the Ubaid culture go north. My fish, I have built you a home. My fish, I have built you a house. I have built you a store. Inside there is incense, and I have covered it with cloth for you. A house not bothered by cords dividing the plots. In the house, there is food, food of the best quality. No flies buzz around in your house where beer is poured out. The threshold and the door bolt, the ritual flower and the incense burner are all in place. The scent and the fragrance in the house 
are like an aromatic cedar forest. In the house, there is beer. There is good beer. There is sweet beer and honeyed cakes extending as far as a reed fence. We're listening to The Home of the Fish. This is a Sumerian poem written in the early 2nd millennium BCE. The narrator is the goddess Nanshe. She's called Mother of the Fish. She is one of the major goddesses of the city-state of Lagash. Fish, of course, were central to the alluvial economy. Fishing would have provided a major source of protein for the average person. Fish were offered in temples. Even early on, we see fish kettles in early levels at Eridu. And certainly at some point, possibly already by the Ubaid, they would have been practicing aquaculture, that is, growing fish in artificial environments. The poem continues. Let your acquaintances come. Let your dear ones come. Let your father and grandfather come. Let the sons of your elder brother and the sons of your younger brother come. Let your little ones come, and your big ones too. Let your wife and your children come. Let your friends and companions come. Let your brother-in-law and your father-in-law come. Let the crowd by the side of your front door come. Don't leave your friend's children outside. Don't leave your neighbors outside, whoever they may be. Enter, my beloved son. Enter, my fine son. Enter, and I will let you relax there. I have made the grounds suitable for you. Inside, I have fixed up a seat for you. My fish, no one who sleeps there will be disturbed. No one who sits there will get involved in a quarrel. So, of course, the relationship between Nanshe and the fish is a mirror of domestic life. The guest-host relationship would have been a central aspect of life across the ancient world. The idea being that if everyone shared the common value of hospitality, no matter where you were, you could be sure that someone would let you in and give you a good meal and a place to sleep. This is part of the trend we've been following since the Pottery Neolithic, when these small egalitarian early Neolithic villages broke apart and relationships between semi-autonomous households began to replace these earlier communal relationships. So essentially, Nanshe is playing the role of a gracious host of a wealthy household, inviting many, many guests in to showcase her generosity. She's not just offering subsistence, but also luxury, like incense, sweet beer, and honey cakes. And aromatic cedar would have had to have been imported. She references irrigation canals. A brackish canal would be useless, so no one would have any reason to dig around it. They wouldn't want that brackish water washing into their own irrigation networks, which of course would create a peaceful resting place for that brackish water. The poem continues. Like a brackish canal, which no longer has any ditches. Like the river silt, which cannot be moved away. Like flowing water, your bed will be spread. May all kinds of fishes also enter with you, my fish. The one with handsome barbells who eats the honey plant, my suhur gall fish. May he also enter with you, my fish. So the suhur is a barbell. It's a type of ray-finned fish. It grew up to two meters long. This fish shows up in the earliest textual records. It was commonly fished in the Guedina, which was the disputed land between Uma and Lagash in the 2400s BCE. The poem continues. The one with big lips who sucks the geese reeds, the black punting pole engendered in the fields. My gooby fish, may he also enter with you, my fish. So the gooby is an eel. On the reference to the eels being in the fields may reference the fact that eels can survive out of water for a short time, longer than fish can. The poem continues. The fish who is like a crying child in its prayers, my shay suhur sieg fish, may he also enter with you, my fish. Now we have a riddle. With a pickaxe as a head, and having a comb for teeth, the branches of a fir tree as its bones, Dumuzi's water skin for the skin of its swim bladder, with the de-haired skin that does not need processing, with its slender tail like the fisherman's whip, the jumping fish, with naturally smooth skin, with no entrails in its nose, the fish who seizes adversaries by arms and legs, whose sting goes across like a nail, which is taboo and is not placed as an offering in the city's shrines, my moor fish, may he also enter with you, my fish. A moor, of course, is a stingray. The list of fish continues. The text is damaged, and some of the names are unclear. Now we have a list of predators, whom Nanshe promises to keep away from the fish. The one who utters its sinister cry in the marshes and rivers, my agane bird. You would be dangling from its claws, my fish. The one who circles the nets, looking for you in the waters where the nets are stretched, my ubure bird. You would be dangling from its claws, my fish. 
the one with long legs that laughs, the alien from faraway waters that writes in the mud, my entree bar bird. You would be dangling from its claws, my fish. The one who seizes the quadrupeds that wander into the marshes, my cuda crocodile. You would be dangling from its claws, my fish. But you won't be dangling from their claws. You won't be snatched up by their feet. Time is pressing, my fish. Just you come to me. Time is pressing. Just you come to me. Nanche, the queen of the fishermen, will be delighted with you. <laughs>